This is the Mother Jones Podcast. I'm Jamila King in New York. On today's show, how Donald Trump is rigging the census. Even if you thought that it was constitutional, the decision-making process here was highly irregular. The brazen effort to sideline already underrepresented populations in 2020. We're talking about millions and millions of people. And how it could determine democracy for decades to come. This might be the baddest faith argument of them all. Now, a controversial census question is before the Supreme Court. And we have one of the lawyers arguing against the government in front of the Supreme Court justices right here to talk about what that's like. That's all ahead. Stick around. The census is the only American event that involves absolutely everyone. Young, old, citizen, non-citizen, rich, and poor, or at least it's supposed to. Here's some quick history. The United States of America, youngest by far of the world's great nations, stands today the envy of the civilized world. The census has been conducted every 10 years since 1790. It's more than 130 million free people It's 33 million homes. The census determines how hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funding is allocated to states and localities each year for things like health, schools, housing, roads, you name it. The plans of school and health officials, the needs of local governments, facts to guide the lawmakers, facts from which a free people can count its gains and chart its future. It's also used to determine how many congressional seats and electoral votes each state receives. Official scorekeeper of American development for 150 years has been the busy but unspectacular United States Census. So it's a big deal. Unbiased facts. You cannot know your country unless your country knows you. We'll hear argument this morning in case 18966, the Department of Commerce versus New York. General Francisco. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Now there's a big fight about one question the Trump administration wants to add to next year's census. Are you a citizen? There have already been three lower court rulings against the government. And it's now in front of the highest court in the land. Mr. Ho? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Dale Ho is the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Dale, welcome to the Mother Jones podcast. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into the actual arguments of this case and why they matter, I wanted to get personal for a moment. Take us to the steps of the Supreme Court. You're looking up at those grand white columns. You take the first steps up those stairs. Yeah. What are you feeling? I'd be so nervous. Uh, I I was pretty nervous. I mean, uh, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, 
It's this big, imposing building, um, and there was a big crowd outside, so felt a lot of juice that morning, I guess. How much preparation goes into these appearances, these oral arguments for you? Um, a lot. Uh, now, normally, I think, and this was my first time arguing the Supreme Court, so I don't know what, I guess, constitutes normal, but normally, um, you have a few months in between when briefing is, do, is, is complete and when um, the argument takes place, so you get a little bit of downtime, and then you can prep for a few months. Um, here we had three weeks from when our brief went in. So I had um, six practice sessions, um, each of which lasted, um, you know, several hours. So um, to try to exhaust every possible question that I could get asked while I was up there, um, it was exhausting. Tell me about these practice sessions. Were they with colleagues? Were they in front of your mirror? Like what <laughs> What were they? If I include in front of the mirror, then it's a lot more than six. Um, they're they're uh, with colleagues and then they're with um, people who've argued in the Supreme Court a number of times. And you, you just get put a panel of them together and then they just grill you. Uh, you just try to figure out every possible question that could be asked and figure out the, the tightest, most concise response um, that you can give and get back onto your main points. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a lot. Take us inside that hallowed room. What does it <laughs> smell like in there? You know, are, are the justices really as high up as they seem in the movies? Like, No, they're not They're not that high up. And one thing, one thing that's kind of bizarre about arguing in the Supreme Court is you're closer to the justices than I think any, at least any other courtroom that I've ever been in. Um, in terms of just proximity to the judges. So the first thing I did when I got there um, that morning into the courtroom was just get up to the podium and just look at how close those seats are so that I could just kind of get accustomed to having to address um, um, not just any judges, um, but the justices of the Supreme Court kind of that close to my face. I mean, you're not more than 10 feet away from them. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's humbling. That seems scary, too. A little bit, you know. I mean, you know, by the time, by the time I stood up to speak, um, the Solicitor General of the United States had gone on for thirty-five minutes. Um, uh, Barbara Underwood, the New York Solicitor General, had been on for twenty minutes. So I'd been there in the room, you know, for almost an hour at that point. Um, so I just kind of ran up to the podium and then started doing my thing. The data that's used for imputation will be contaminated by those incorrect responses making the- About 90 seconds into it, I was kind of humming along and I was sort of told myself like, this is just like arguing in any other court. You know, it's it's not any different from that. I'm just making my points. And then I looked and all nine justices were just looking at me as I was making a point, not like flipping through briefs or joking around with each other, but just like eyes locked. And then this little voice inside my head was like, no, it's not like any other court. Those are the nine Supreme Court justices all staring at you. And I was like, shut up. So I had a weird kind of bizarre out of body experience for 10 seconds there before I got back into the rhythm. So you're there arguing the addition of the citizenship question is unconstitutional. What's the crux of the argument you're presenting? There are really two arguments. One is that it's unconstitutional because the purpose of the census is to get uh, a complete count of the United States population because the Constitution requires that that is how representation in the House of Representatives is divvied up. And any choices or actions by the Census Bureau and the Secretary of Commerce who oversees the census um, that interfere with that 
uh, in a significant way are unconstitutional. That's one argument. The other argument is a more technical kind of procedural argument, and it's under the Federal Administrative Procedure Act, which basically says that when the government takes an action, it has to go through certain processes. It has to be transparent. Uh, what we argued and I think proved at trial was that uh, the reasoning for this decision didn't make sense, that it was a cover-up uh, behind the administration's real agenda, that they said they wanted a complete count of citizens when in fact all of the evidence in the studies that the Census Bureau did showed that they would get a less complete count um, when this question is on there for reasons that we can talk about later um, on today. Um, so just even if you thought that it was constitutional, the decision-making process here was highly irregular, um, concealed the administration's true motives, and didn't actually effectuate what the administration claimed it would do. Now, I want to bring Ari Berman, our voting rights reporter, in. Uh, Ari, tell me – so first, hi, Ari. Hey, Jamila. Welcome back to the Mother Jones podcast. <laughs> and, and, and you know what's funny is I could hear Dale, but I couldn't see him in the Supreme Court because uh, I was sitting there listening in the press box to the oral arguments. And I actually thought I got totally screwed when I got my seat number uh, because I was all the way at the end. I'm like, oh, man, because a lot of the seats are – obstructed. So I thought I was going to be looking into like a curtain for the whole time. But I actually, I peered over to my left. I could see all nine justices, which had never happened. I had always gotten such a bad seat. I could never see all the justices. So I could see all the justices, but I couldn't see Dale or anyone else uh, <laughs> arguing. But I, I imagine I got the, I imagine it was more important for me to see the justices than you, Dale. Oh, right? yeah. 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 How many people do experts say will be undercounted if this question winds up on the census? The Census Bureau estimated that 6.5 million people could be undercounted if this question ends up on the census, which they said was a conservative estimate. So we're talking about millions and millions of people that might not respond to the census if the citizenship question is on there. And that's a really big deal because the purpose of the census is to count everyone. Dale, in the court, the conservative justices appeared at least ready to uphold the addition of the citizenship question by claiming it's needed for better enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. What did they say? First, I, I, one thing I do want to say is that it's sometimes hard to read the tea leaves. To your question, the administration says they need citizenship, the citizenship question in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which we all know is a very high priority of the Trump administration, right? I mean, they haven't brought a single case under the Voting Rights Act. And it's, I mean, it's just sort of facially ridiculous. There hasn't been a citizenship question on the census since the entire since since the entire life of the Voting Rights Act, right? Last time this question was asked was 1950. Voting Rights Act wasn't enacted until 1965, 15 years later. So the notion that we somehow need this question to enforce the VRA is just facially absurd. It's so absurd because I remember sitting in the Supreme Court six years ago and listening as the, the justices struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act. So it was this court, it was the Roberts Court that gutted the heart of the Voting Rights Act. And for them to turn around six years later and say, oh, by the way, we need this question to enforce the Voting Rights Act. I mean, you have a court that has been hostile to voting rights. You have a Trump administration that has been hostile to voting rights. You have every single voting rights lawyer in the country, uh, Dale Chief among them, saying, we don't need this question to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And not even that, the communities that the Voting Rights Act is supposed to protect, they are going to be the ones that are most affected uh, by the addition of the citizenship question. So, I mean, there have been a lot of bad faith arguments 
defense uh, by the Trump administration. This might be the baddest faith argument of them all. Dale, you argue that the addition of the question will so severely damage the accuracy of the census that six states are at risk of losing a seat in the House of Representatives. How does that work exactly? Well, the households that have non-citizens in them, they're not evenly distributed around the country. They're concentrated in particular states. And um, six states, the trial court in our case found, were at a high risk of losing a seat in Congress if those six and a half million people don't respond. Um, New York, California, Florida, Arizona, Illinois, and Texas. Sometimes when I try to explain this to folks, I hear, you know, conservatives pushing back and saying like, well, non-citizens shouldn't have representation in Congress to begin with. And I think, you know, two points in response to that. The first is we're not talking about just non-citizens losing representation. It's every person who lives in those states is going to lose representation, citizen and non-citizen alike, first of all. And second of all, everyone gets counted in the census. That's literally in the Constitution. Now, I understand some people don't like that. And my answer to that is, if you don't like it, amend the Constitution. Ari, there's some backstory here we're talking about with Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, whose department oversees the census. Ross initially claimed that the Justice Department had initiated the request for the citizenship question, but evidence now shows otherwise. What do we know now? Wilbur Ross is really one of the most corrupt members of the Trump administration. That's a pretty low bar at this point. But even among the Ben Carsons of the world uh, and all of the terrible uh, members of the cabinet, I think Wilbur Ross has really distinguished himself. And the federal courts, three different federal courts, have basically called him a liar. I mean, they didn't say that, but they might as well have said that. And and this is why they, they said it, because Wilbur Ross claimed this question was needed to enforce the Voting Rights Act when everyone knows that's not the case. But more to the point, the process in which this question was enacted, it seems like Wilbur Ross has repeatedly tried to cover up uh, how this question got on the census. He uh, first claimed, uh, both in a public letter and before Congress, that the Justice Department initiated the request for this letter. But there's tons and tons of emails that Wilbur Ross has sent, which show him basically on a fishing expedition, trying to get the Justice Department, trying to get the Department of Homeland Security, trying to get anyone who could have the authority to request this question. And repeatedly being told no, uh, the Justice Department says, we're so busy with the firing of James Comey, we don't want to do this. The Department of Homeland Security says, we don't want to do this. And finally, Ross convinces Jeff Sessions. The second thing is that Ross claims that he didn't discuss the question with the White House. He says this before Congress. He says uh, that I'm not aware of discussing it with anyone from the White House. And then again, we have these emails that show Ross is talking to Steve Bannon, the architect of the Trump administration's white nativist strategy. And Bannon is putting Ross in touch with Chris Kobach, the former secretary of state of Kansas, who I've written a lot about, who is the architect of laws restricting immigration and restricting voting. And it it just begs the question, if, if this was so important and so necessary in such a good faith effort, why did Wilbur Ross repeatedly try to cover up? Dale, so what happens next? When are we likely to hear some news from the Supreme Court on this? Well, the Supreme Court could announce its uh, decision at any time. I suspect it'll come late uh, in the term, maybe even on the last day. So I would expect end of June. Um, the census questionnaires are supposed to start printing um, in July. And I, whenever I mention that, it, it feels it feels kind of silly coming out of my mouth, like we're worried about when you're going to go to a printer. But as Ari pointed out, you know, the, the census is 
this massive, massive undertaking. They have to print hundreds of millions of forms to be ready to do the census in 2020. So that deadline is actually a significant one. And when they start printing in July, there'll either be a question about citizenship on it or there won't be, depending on what the Supreme Court says. We don't have another census. Like if we screw the census up in 2020, we're not doing another census in 2021 or 2022. We have to live with the consequences. If you're concerned about all of these issues in our democracy, uh, voter suppression, uh, fair representation, uh, economic equity, an unfair census is going to hurt all of those things. So that's why this is such a critical case. If if you just look at it like, oh, it's one question on one thing, then it doesn't seem that important. If you look at like, this is a dagger in the heart of one of the most important things we do in our country, and we're going to have to live with this for the next decade, that a rigged census is going to produce an even more rigged politics, then you start to understand how important this is. Dale Ho, Ari Berman, stick around because we want to talk more about some wider assaults on voting rights, not just the census, coming up. The Mother Jones stories you're hearing right now are brought to you by our listeners and loyal readers who fuel our work. Audience support makes up two-thirds of the Mother Jones budget and helps our team dig deep on stories that matter. Make a donation at motherjones.com give to keep our nonprofit newsroom humming. Again, that's motherjones.com G-I-V-E. Welcome back to the show. Today on the Mother Jones podcast, you're hearing from Dale Ho, the director of the Voting Rights Project at the ACLU. He's one of the lawyers who was just in front of the Supreme Court justices making arguments in the census case. And we also have Mother Jones's own Ari Berman. And today, it's all about the continued widespread attacks on voting rights ahead of the 2020 election. Ari, you've had your eye on two gerrymandering cases also before the Supreme Court this term. Firstly, I think it's always good to remind listeners about some basic terms here. These cases are about partisan gerrymandering. What is partisan gerrymandering? Basically, when you manipulate the drawing of political districts for partisan advantage, um, it, it's not that complicated. I mean, we, we see these crazy-looking districts. We also see these crazy uh, election outcomes, like in Wisconsin in 2018, when uh, candidates for the state legislature, uh, Democratic candidates, got uh, 54% of the vote, but they only got 36% of the seats uh, in the Wisconsin legislature. Those kind of things where you both have uh, very strangely shaped dis- districts or districts that were part of a very strange process, but also then you get outcomes um, that are highly irregular. That's what's thought of as partisan gerrymandering. Dale, what do these two cases tell Tell us about the direction of the court when it comes to gerrymandering. Well, we're going to find out when the Supreme Court decides. You know, for decades, the court has said that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, but has never struck down a partisan gerrymander because the court has said that it 
wasn't yet capable of determining um, when politics uh, becomes too much. Today, the social sciences really, really advanced to the point where we can see how outcomes get locked into place by the lines. We just had a case decided in Ohio where the Republican um, um, Party was always getting 75% of Ohio's congressional seats. It didn't matter what percentage of the votes that they got, essentially. They could get 50% of the votes. They could get 60% of the votes. Always 75% of the seats. And that's uh, a repudiation of democracy, right? When the result, the votes don't matter, the results are always going to be the, the same. The lower courts, pretty much regardless of partisan affiliation, are striking down these maps. And we've had decisions in North Carolina, uh, in Wisconsin, in Michigan and Ohio just recently that have been unanimous in the Michigan and Ohio cases where you had both Republican appointee and Democratic appointees basically uh, striking down these maps. And it's kind of like what Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said about pornography. You know it when you see it. And the courts are really saying this is not that complicated, that uh, it's clear that the legislatures in these states uh, knew what they were doing. They intended to gerrymander. It's clear that the maps produce those outcomes so that Republicans are consistently getting uh, 75% of the vote no matter what happens. And in a lot of cases, getting a minority of the votes, getting less than 50% of the votes, but getting way more than 50% of the seats, which just violates every aspect of representative democracy, uh, and that we can do something about this. And the Supreme Court seems willing to acknowledge that this is happening, uh, and which is almost a shift because for a while they were just completely not even acknowledging this is real. Now they're saying, okay, we get that gerrymandering is distasteful. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh said this at the last argument, but what are we supposed to do about it? They're making it seem like this is the most intractable problem. Like this is like curing cancer. And it's really not that complicated. And I think the, the, all of the federal courts below the Supreme Court have provided a roadmap for what, what this should look like. And this is really, really important because we are going to head into the next redistricting cycle in 2021. And the 2020 elections are going to determine who draws the maps in 2021. And if the Supreme Court basically says partisan gerrymandering is fine, well, that's just going to embolden all of these states to do the same kind of gerrymandering or worse, what, because technology is going to get so much more sophisticated in the next cycle. So if, they, if the Supreme Court doesn't act now, gerrymandering is going to probably get even worse after 2020. Dale, what else are you worried about most when it comes to voting rights? Wow. <laughs> you know, we're looking very carefully at the legislation that just got passed in Florida um, in response to the constitutional amendment from last year, which reenfranchised people who have finished serving their felony convictions. Uh, uh, it was uh, hailed uh, when, when voters passed that ballot initiative last year with over 60 percent of the vote. It was hailed as maybe the single largest act of enfranchisement since 18-year-olds won the right to vote. Um, Florida had uh, 1.4 million people who stood to gain their voting rights back um, after this because Florida was one of the only states in the country that banned you from voting for life for a single felony offense. Um, it was a, a great outcome. But the Florida legislature has come back and said, um, you may have finished your time in prison, you may have finished your parole or probation, but if you still owe any fines or fees or restitution associated with your sentence, tough luck. You can't get your voting rights back until you pay that off. Now, we're not exactly sure how many people this affects, but because of the strong overlap of uh, 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 criminalization and poverty in this country, um, the estimates are that it's it's going to be hundreds of thousands of people um, who um, don't 
get their voting rights restored. And this was part of a broader trend we saw in 2018 of voters wanting to expand democracy and make democracy more fair. We saw voters in other states do things like pass uh, election day registration, automatic uh, registration, uh, vote to curb gerrymandering. So in both red and blue states alike, we saw voters decisively say that democracy should be more fair. Now what we're seeing is the backlash to that. We are seeing the state legislatures in these places, in particular Florida, but not exclusive to Florida, come back in and say, you know what? We don't like what the voters did. So we are going to do our best to nullify it right now. We already have the backdrop of since the 2010 election, half the states in the country have made it harder to vote. So that that's already the landscape. And now you have state legislatures coming back in this session in advance of the 2020 election. And according to the Brennan Center for Justice, um, 19 bills restricting voting are being considered in 10 states, including states like Florida that are going to be pivotal to deciding the next president. And so I think if you look at the voter suppression, if you look at the gerrymandering we're seeing, if you look at efforts to rig the census, it all has to be seen as part of a broader whole. Finally, Dale, any future Supreme Court appearances for you (laughs) (laughs) and any optimism that, uh, you know, you can share as we go headlong into 2020? Well, I mean, leaving aside all of the stakes um, and just thinking about the actual act of arguing in the Supreme Court, it was, you know, it was it was fun. Um, And I'm, you know, happy to do it again. But I think given where we are right now, um, it's a tough court for progressives and for civil rights advocates. Um, If we can win our cases in the lower courts and never see the Supreme Court, um, um, I could live with not getting another argument. Dale Ho from the ACLU, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And Mother Jones's Ari Berman, thanks to you so much for joining us on the Mother Jones podcast. Great to talk to you again. At Mother Jones, we really care a lot about this topic. If you want to read more, Ari Berman is the reporter to read on our website, motherjones.com. Before we go, we have a special treat for you this week. In honor of Mother's Day, our fellows are giving credit where credit is due. To their moms. Take it away. Hi, my name is Nicola Ferno, and my daughter, Rosa Ferno, is an editorial fellow in the San Francisco office. Right now, I'm calling from Norwich in England. I've loved loads of the stories Rosa's worked on, but one of my favourites was published around Halloween time. It highlighted developments in the long-running allegations that multinational chocolate companies aided and abetted child slavery on cocoa farms in the Ivory Coast. That was great timing and hopefully made people think twice about the sweet treats they were buying their own kids. Hi, my name is Tamara Gosporet, and my daughter Jordan Gosporet is a digital media fellow in the New York City office. Right now, I'm calling from Seguin, Texas. My favorite story that Jordan worked on was the one about adult adoptees fighting to get access to their original birth certificate. I know that she worked really hard on that. Hi, my name is Laura Esserman, and my daughter is Marisa Endicott. She's an editorial fellow in the San Francisco Mother Jones office. Right now, I'm calling from San Francisco, California. My favorite story that Marisa's worked on is the Passover Seder in San Quentin Prison podcast. Hi, my name is Christy Van Pikren, and my son, Sam Van Pikren, is a digital media fellow in the New York City office. 
Right now I'm calling from Santa Cruz, California. My favorite podcast Sam worked on is the number 15, America's Rage-Inducing Student Debt Machine. It really helped me feel less alone. Here are the credits for today's show. Music for the Mother Jones podcast was composed by Micah Barrick at Herefilm. This episode was produced by James West, who also edited and mixed the show. Additional production today from Jordan Gosperay. Social video by Sam Van Pykren. This show's executive producer is James West, and its managing producer is Julia B. Chan. And credit where credit is due. Mother Jones is supported by you, our listeners and readers. So, so thanks. thanks. That's it this week for the Mother Jones podcast. I'm Jamila King in New York. Stay tuned because next week we got a really exciting interview with Julian Castro. He's now running to be the first Latino president of the United States. He will be joining us to talk about his vision for America and where he sees the Democratic Party moving in the future. I'm Jamila King in New York. See you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Mother Jones listeners like you who donate to keep our newsroom buzzing. Help us stay on the beat. Go to motherjones.com slash give.